Hello, LSBC family. It is a magnificent day because, you know, I really enjoy celebrating Christmas. I really enjoy celebrating Easter. And I, and I really enjoy celebrating Pentecost Sunday. Now, let, let me tell you why. It's obvious, you know, there are obvious reasons why people get excited about Christmas. We are celebrating um, the birth of, of Jesus Christ. And then Easter, we're celebrating the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Well, on Pentecost Sunday, whether you see this or have seen it in the past or not, realize this today. We're celebrating the birth of the church on Pentecost Sunday because when the Holy Spirit fell, uh, on those that were uh, waiting and tarrying for the gift of the Holy Ghost and for the church to be born, that was a birth. It was a birth, and magnificent things happened. So uh, we're going to spend some time. Uh, we, could, we could spend weeks covering just the first four or five chapters of Acts, and we're, we're not going to do that. We're going to spend uh, one time together today. Uh, and what I titled this message was Pentecost, and defective evangelism because when the Holy Spirit came on the scene, evangelism exploded like an atomic bomb and um, really seriously dynamic. Uh, we're also going to answer a couple of questions along the way that don't necessarily have anything to do with Pentecost Sunday, but you know, I'll be on the phone with somebody, another Christian, and we'll be talking and some question will come up. And the question just sets in my spirit and, and kind of rides with me. And next thing you know, as I'm studying or praying or reading or whatever, the answer to the question really rises up. Uh, one of the questions that was asked of me recently was that with everything that's going on in the world, did I feel like we were living in the last days? Well, the passage of scripture that we're going to share today is going to answer that question for us. You may not like the answer, um, you may not think that it's a very specific, but it's the Word of God. And so, for me, that's all I got to do is read the Word of God. If I see it in the Bible, it, that's good enough for me. I don't argue with it. I don't. I get disappointed. I don't. I just. It's the Word of God, and I just take God at His word. Uh, another question was, and and you you may hear me refer to this question and think to yourself, how could someone not know the answer to that question? But there, there's no, there's no question that you, you can ask about the Bible that, you know, everyone doesn't know the answer to every question. And maybe you know the answer to the subject I'm about to bring up, but a lot of people don't. And let's don't take for granted that they do. And let's certainly don't frown on people who ask questions that, you know, we might think, well, why don't you know the answer to that question? Well, I'm 63 years old and I've learned a long time ago, you don't you don't, don't, don't be surprised at what people don't know. Just continue to teach the Word of God if you're a teacher of the Word. If the Word's on the inside of you, keep giving it away. Uh, keep teaching people. Keep bringing people up in their knowledge and understanding the Word. And you're, when you do that, you're helping to change people's lives. So this other question was, if you want to know, I mean, uh, people have asked me before, well, you've got Easter that shows up every year on the calendar. And then so many days later, Pentecost shows up on the calendar. And um, the question was, how do they know where to put Pentecost Sunday? How do, do they know where to put Easter Sunday? How do they know where to put Pentecost, uh, the, the day that we celebrate Pentecost? How do they know where to put it on the calendar? Now, some of you are probably smiling right now because you know it, it's a matter of simple math, really. 
And we're going to look in the Word, and we're going to see how and why it is that people, when they make up the calendar every year, put Easter where they put Easter, and put Pentecost Sunday where they put Pentecost Sunday. All right? So those are some of the fun facts, the fun trivia things that we're going to deal with. And we're also going to take a look at Pentecost itself, which is, is magnificent. I mean, when the Holy Ghost fell in Jerusalem, the Holy Ghost put a grip on that city, everyone in it. No one escaped what God was doing that day in the city of Jerusalem. And it had an effect on everybody. And, um, and when the church was established, it was really established like the city had been hit with a sledgehammer. Just uh, watch uh, the Word of God with me. Uh, it just excites me to know in that, that here you've got uh, the people that were witnessing Jesus um, rise up in the sky, ascend to heaven, disappear in the clouds, and then two angels uh, ask those people, what are you standing here looking up into, into the heavens for? You're going to see him return the same way you saw him left, leave. But then they went ahead and told him they needed to follow the instructions that Jesus uh, told them, go to the city and tarry there and wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, I'm paraphrasing, but um, they did that. They went. They waited. The Holy Spirit fell. Um, tongues of fire came on those people, and they began to speak in many different languages. And people were in Jerusalem uh, for the celebration of Pentecost, and all of them heard these people, Galileans, speak in their language. It's very impressive. Um, it had an effect on them, and uh, they knew that the words they were hearing were God-ordained, and it had an effect on many people in the city. So, we're going to take a block of uh, Scripture from Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. We're going to use that as a diving board for our, our uh, message today. And I titled the message today, Pentecost and Effective Evangelism. You know, when the Holy Spirit comes into a place and starts inhabiting the the praises of the people and, and, and starts, you know, coming in and nestling down and making himself at home in the worship services of a church. There is no evangelism program. There's no, um, there's no promotion. There's no, nothing can take the place of the Holy Spirit showing up in a church and then growing the church. There's nothing like it. I mean, it, 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 it's magnificent. It's explosive. It's dynamic. They're, they're just, you run out of words that you, you can't uh, use to explain it. So, having said all of that, I want us to pray together. Grab your Bibles. Get to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read verses 14 through 21. Acts 2, 14 through 21, but we're going to pray first. Father, I want to thank you for this celebration of Pentecost Sunday. Uh, Father, I, I want to tell you that I'm very excited that many of the... Um, uh, ministers, uh, men and women in, in this country that are spiritual leaders, all seem to be talking about what I believe you've laid on my heart, that this is a special Pentecost Sunday and that you're going to do great things and you are doing great things in this country, Father. Lord, we need a visit of your Holy Spirit to fall on this country much like it did in Jerusalem and to make an impact, to make a change. We know that you're drawing people to you we know you're calling this nation to repentance. You're calling the church in America to repentance. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would work on our lives, Father. Show us things we've never seen before. Teach us, Father. Draw us closer to you than we've ever been before. We want to give this time to you, Lord, and we thank you for touching our eyes, our ears, 
Our hearts are understanding, Father. Thank you for preparing the soil of our hearts to receive your word, that that seed would be planted well and would be watered with prayer, and that a great harvest would come forth for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 2, begin reading with verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then, folks, this was from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and verse 29, word for word. Verse 17, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. One of the things that I talked about in the beginning of our time together today was uh, the question of did I believe we were in the last days? Well, I, I went back to Joel chapter 2 uh, in, prepar in preparation for the message and looked at verse 28 and 29. Joel was one of the minor prophets and he spoke these words way back in the Old Testament. We don't have reference to them again until you get to Acts chapter 2 where the day of Pentecost unfolded, where the Holy Spirit fell on these people that had been waiting on the Holy Spirit. And all these magnificent things happened. And it was so wild, it was so crazy that the, the populace there, the visitors to Jerusalem that saw them thought they were all drunk, right? So Peter had to defend them. They're, they're not drunk. It's only a third hour day. It was nine o'clock in the morning. He's saying they didn't have time to get drunk yet. And um, so when the quote from Joel was quoted by Peter, it said, and in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. And listen, the words you're about to read, what, what did we see? The beginning of it is Joel describing the falling of the Holy Spirit, the beginning of the church age, as the last days, in the last days, right? And it goes on to say, in the latter part of verse 20, uh, before the day of the Lord comes the great menace day. No, I got to back up even further. Verse 18, even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And that's words from where? The book of Revelation. So you got the beginning of the church uh, age where the Holy Spirit falls and the church is born. This is the birthday of the church in the world, Pentecost Sunday that we're celebrating. And it says in the last days, this is what's going to happen. The church will be born and everything they say leads all the way up to, end, to the end where uh, words that you read in Revelation are unfolding. So the church age is the last days. 
I'd, I'd love to be able to have a formula or something or whatever to say, you know, this is when Christ is going to come back. But the Bible warns against that. No one knows. God knows. Even Christ said that is given to the Father. Not even Christ knows. Christ will come back when Father turns to him and tells him come back. So there's that. And then there's the question of, which really isn't the main focus of the sermon, but how do they know where to put Easter on the calendar? And then how do they know where to put Pentecost? We're going to get to that. And to get to that, you've got to look at the feasts that God instituted to the children of Israel when they were encamped around Mount Sinai. Now, before that, let's read the, the message goal. The message goal is to realize that Pentecost is not, is not about the size of the church. It has everything to do with the effectiveness of the presence of God and should awaken a fresh hunger in our lives for him and a disdain for the things of this world. So, by way of introduction, we're going to look into the feast. The Bible is made up of 66 books and two major divisions, the Old Testament and the New Testament, both equally inspired by God. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote the letter to the Romans in chapter 15 and verse 4, make a note of that, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now, one of the things that was written in the past is the record of the feasts in Israel. In Leviticus 23, they're called the Feasts of the Lord. Now, there were seven feasts listed that comprise a representation of the redemption provided for us through Christ. All seven of the feasts are about Christ and how his involvement in our lives would unfold. There's representation. There's symbolism. All right? So, um, God introduced the seven feasts to the children of Israel, uh, like we said earlier, while they were encamped at Mount Sinai. So although these seven holidays or feasts are mentioned throughout different places in the Bible, um, it's only in Leviticus chapter 23 that all seven of the feasts or holidays are listed in chronological order as God wanted them to unfold on the calendar. So they're called in the Bible the feasts of the Lord, which simply means they were instituted by God himself, a fact that to me makes them extremely important. And the Bible says they were called holy convocations that took place at appointed times. The word holy convocations comes from the Bible and appointed times comes from the Bible. So perhaps one of the most fascinating biblical studies is the historic and prophetic significance of these special feasts. Now, here's a special note for you. While believers are not required to keep these feasts, every believer should be familiar with them as they not only celebrate a historical event in Israel's past, but are at the same time a prophecy or a type of future events. So Pentecost was one of the Jewish, Jewish feast days, but, but you read about the feasts in the book of Leviticus, and then you move forward to the New Testament in the book of Acts, it's called Pentecost. Now, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, Pentecost was one of the Jewish feast days, but they didn't call it Pentecost. That's a New Testament Greek name. The Jews called it the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Weeks. And that's what you find in Leviticus 23. You don't find Pentecost in Leviticus 23. Um, so that was written in Hebrew. And, and the New Testament was written in Greek. And the Greek word 
uh, for the festival, uh, the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Weeks, is Pentecost. You know what it means? It means 50. Pentecost in Greek is the number 50. Now, let's look at the significance of that. All right, it's mentioned um, in, uh, these feasts are mentioned off and on in the first five books of the uh, of the Bible that were penned by Moses. The only one that uh, is not mentioned in is Genesis. The feasts aren't mentioned in Genesis at all. So uh, it's mentioned in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, the feasts were. Uh, and Pentecost, or uh, the Feast of Weeks, it was a celebration of the beginning of the early weeks of harvest. In Palestine, there were two harvests each year. The early harvest came during the months of May, or May and June. So you know that Easter is going to be set on the counter sometimes in May and all the way up. We've had it uh, scheduled on the calendar before as late as early June. Um, it's not as important to me for this message that I know why or where they put Easter Sunday at, but it's very important that we know why where they put Pentecost Sunday and why they do it because it's important. There's an important lesson in it. Pentecost was a celebration of the beginning of the early wheat harvest, which meant that Pentecost always fell sometime during the middle of the month of May or sometimes in early June. Uh, there were several festivals that took place before Pentecost. There was Passover, there was unleavened bread, and there was the Feast of First Fruits. Uh, here is a side note. The Feast of First Fruits was the celebration of the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, here's the way you figured out the day of Pentecost. According to the Old Testament, you would go to the day of the celebration of first fruits, whatever that was, the harvest. And beginning with that day, you would count off 50 days. The 50th day would be the day of Pentecost. So first fruits is the beginning of the barley harvest, and Pentecost is the celebration of the beginning of the wheat harvest. Since it was always 50 days after first fruits, and since 50 days equals seven weeks, if you do the math, it always came on what the Jews called a week of weeks later. A week has seven days in it. So there were seven of those weeks. So they called it the week of weeks later. Therefore, they either called it the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Weeks. Does that make sense? Now, I, I find it unusual. I find it interesting that in Acts chapter 1, in the first three verses, it states, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when it was taken up, after he had given up, uh, given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 3 is what's important. Jesus, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them uh, during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So, 40 days after the resurrection, in that 40-day window, he was seen by over 500 people, is what the Bible tells us. And, and on, that 50, or on that 40th day, he ascended to heaven after telling the disciples, those people with him. We find out in Acts, there's 120 people. He tells them to go to Jerusalem and tarry there, wait there, until the gift of the Spirit comes, until the Holy Spirit comes which would be the birth of the church. I don't even have to look any further to do the math and understand that Pentecost is the day that the Holy Spirit fell on that day of celebration, celebration in Jerusalem, and he ascended 40 days after he was raised from the dead. It tells me that from that day, from that day, 
that they were told by Jesus to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Ghost was 10 days later. 10 days later. We, we know this factually because we know that he was seen for 40 days. He ascended. He had told them to go to Jerusalem and wait. And when the Holy Spirit fell, we know for a fact it was on the day of Pentecost. So that would have been 50 days after he was resurrected. See, you see what I'm saying? 50 days after he was resurrected. All of that, by way of introduction, may be just incidental, but it's it's uh, introduction before we get into the meat of the message. You know, here's what I want to read to you. Leviticus chapter 23, I only want to do three verses there. Verse 15 says, You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you bought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. Just just a, a side thought here to share with you. Two loaves, but one offering. That last line is, they shall be of fine flour and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. Here's something that you need to understand. You know, when we have communion, we use crackers or whatever. They represent the unleavened bread that was served by Christ uh, at the Last Supper, at that communion service. And, and, we, and they had wine and they had unleavened bread and we use crackers and grape juice. It's symbolic of unleavened bread and grape juice and we pray over those symbols that God would cause them to be to us what he would have them to be that's how we have communion but whenever the Word of God refers to unleavened bread that is representative of Christ notice that uh, the last line says they shall be of fine flour and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord and what they would do because the instructions were everybody brings two loaves of bread with you to the feast to the festival and they're waved by the priest before the lord as a wave offering now they were instructed to have leaven in them so what does that tell us unleavened bread represents jesus christ sinless bread with leaven in it represents man now uh, the priests were to wave that before the lord representing lifting up man to god well we've got to get with God to get straightened out. That's what we got to do, to be touched by God, to be changed. So it's lifted up these two loaves of bread. Why bread with leaven? Represents man, not Jesus. And then the question was, why two loaves? One represented the Gentiles, one represented the Jews. And they were waved by the priests to the Lord. Now, what does that mean? I wrote two loaves, but one offering. So we find that God's original plan was that the Jew and the Gentile will worship the Lord as one body. So we find that the church is birthed from all of this in the book of Acts, and it's a beautiful picture of the church that's painted there, uh, and mainly the first five chapters uh, of, of the book of Acts. So we're celebrating Pentecost Sunday. It's very dear to my heart. Like I said, I, I don't have the same feelings, exact same feelings about it as I have about Christmas and Easter, but however, I wouldn't attempt to diminish the importance of this celebration. After all, we celebrate the birth of Christ, should we not celebrate the birth of his church? 
You know, we could spend any number of Sunday services exploring the richness of the value in the first few chapters of Acts alone. However, let's take a few minutes to focus on the goal of of today's message. The first point I want to make about Pentecost, or the birth of the church, which is, it was outstanding, it was fantastic, it was magnificent, it was miraculous, it was full of miracles. Um, You know, people uh, manifested tongues, you know, uh, to visitors from all over the world. They heard them preach uh, the wonderful uh, things of God in their own languages. I mean, all kinds of miracles happen. Let's, let's look. All right, so the first point of the message is Pentecost is not about the numbers. However, pay attention to what happened. As a pastor, it's difficult not to be astounded by the sheer numbers of the people who reacted to the actual event. Once the attention of the visitors to Jerusalem was captured by the spectacle presented by the newly filled Christians, Peter preached a very short sermon, and 3,000 people got saved. 3,000 people. Now, you know, I, I pray about every message I give. I ask God to anoint me. I ask God to bless me with the message. I ask God to bless me with the power to preach it. I ask God to cleanse me, get me ready. I mean, all of these things. But I've never preached a sermon that had this kind of effect on a group of people. Never. And, and it gets weirder than that. Watch with me. In America today, there are people who would classify that day as a one-day megachurch. Boom. They went from 120 to 3,000 in the first 24 hours. Boom. Just like that, right? As a matter of fact, there are four casual references to the growth of the early church contained within the first five chapters of the book of Acts that seem to appear almost inconsequential, but they're not inconsequential. Um, I, I believe that they slip the numbers in and the references to let you know the Holy Spirit's there, and these are the kinds of things that the Holy Spirit does. So, so compare that to the question of, is the Holy Spirit manifest in the American church today? And I'm going to tell you no. And it's time we do something about it. it. God wants to do something about it. Pay attention to this. Acts chapter 2, verses 40 and 41. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So there were 3,000 plus. 3,000 plus 120. You could say about 3,000. There was already 120 there. So approximately 3,000 people. Uh, that was the starter church in Jerusalem in the first 24 hours. So, here's what I wrote. Pay attention to this note. The church went from 120 people to 3,000 after what couldn't have been more than a 20-minute sermon preached by a man that just about 53 days earlier lied about even knowing Jesus at all. That, that That's mind-boggling to me. I mean, I already told you what I just you know said about how I pray, how I prepare, how I get ready, how I ask God to anoint me, right? And Peter was a mess. Just 53 days earlier, he denied he knew Christ three times after living with him for three years. And now he preaches this message under the anointing of the Holy Ghost. That tells me that in the church today and in my life and in your life, in the church in America today, Something is tragically lacking and needs to be repaired, needs to be fixed, needs to be met. So, look at Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, 
They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, then, after that, maybe it slowed down. Well, bounce down to Acts chapter 4. Look at verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So now they've counted the men, and they counted 5,000 men. Now, if church back then was anything like today, um, don't the women and children outnumber the men? I mean, wouldn't it be easy enough to say that by now, the church in Jerusalem is running over 15,000 people? I mean, if you've got 5,000 men, if you had 5,000 women and 5,000 children, you got 15,000 people. That is not a stretch of the imagination. So the church is growing pretty well in Jerusalem under the, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, working through the apostles. Go to Acts chapter 5, verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. You know, I need to emphasize once again why I said this thing about, about point one. It's not about the numbers. It's about God. It's about Christ. It's about the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is in your church, is at the core of your church, is at the core of the leadership, all of these things are possible. Don't tell me that it died with the apostles because I don't have proof of that in the Word. Matter of fact, I find many scriptures that contradict that. Um, I, I, I want to show you a couple more things in the Word. Let me just share a few things with you. So I say, please don't be confused about how I'm treating this point. This is not an attempt on my part to be flippant. The things I've learned about the Holy Ghost is that he's referred to in the Bible as a comforter, a helper, he is the power that draws people to God, and he teaches people about Jesus. There are a few of his characteristics. Jesus said in his lifetime, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto him. And he was talking about specifically his crucifixion at the time. But there are other references in the Bible that teaches it's not just the crucifixion he's talking about. What happens in a church service if Jesus, through praise and worship, is truly lifted up? What happens if if God, through his Holy Spirit, inhabits the praises of his people and, and the Holy Spirit helps the people lift up Jesus, doesn't matter what programs you're using, it doesn't matter what uh, promotions you, you, you attempt to use, no one and nothing can grow the church like the presence of the Holy Spirit. You see it in Jerusalem when the church was being established. We need to get back to focusing on him and his Holy Spirit, and helping us lift up the name of Jesus. So, um, when the Holy Spirit shows up in a church service, he lifts up Jesus, and he draws people. He grows the church. So let me be perfectly clear. Pentecost is definitely not about the numbers, but if the Holy Spirit truly shows up and unpacks his gifts, he will draw a crowd. He will draw a crowd. Point number two. Pentecost, it is about the effectiveness of his presence. In other words, the presence of the Holy Spirit makes special things happen. Look at Acts chapter 2 again, verse 42 and 43. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul 
and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now jump down to Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, when they laid daily at the gate, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognizing him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You know, I'll never forget walking into a Pentecostal church for the very first time. I was in my late teens. I'd, I'd just finished living several terrible years of rebellion uh, in, in my teens, and uh, I'd come back to God and uh, been raised in, in a Southern Baptist church, good, good solid church. Baptist church is a good solid doctrine, only they didn't, they didn't dwell on uh, Pentecost. They didn't dwell on the Holy Spirit and then filling with the gifts of the Spirit and praying in tongues. And that's not a criticism. It's just an observation. Uh, my family had started to visit this Pentecostal church, and so um, I went, and I sat up in the balcony. I'm kind of hiding. I didn't know what to expect. But I'll never forget what unfolded. Like I say, I was kind of hiding in the balcony because I didn't know what would happen. I, I didn't know what to look for. And suddenly down on the main floor on the left side of the sanctuary, someone stood up and began to speak in a language I didn't understand. And as soon as this person stopped speaking, someone stood up on the other side of the sanctuary and gave a beautiful and edifying interpretation of the message in English. The sanctuary broke out in praise and worship. There's no way to explain to someone the effect it had on the whole room without you being there. I'd never seen anything like it uh, and had never paid attention to what the Bible teaches about the gifts of the Spirit, but there was no denying that God had just spoken to us through the presence of his Holy Spirit. Uh, this is because the true presence of the Holy Spirit is undeniable. You feel it way down deep on the inside in your spirit all the way out to the outside. You say, Brother Dennis, how do you know? Well, you feel it in your spirit. You feel it down deep inside all the way to the outside. Literally, you got chill bumps all over your body. I mean, the Holy Spirit's just shown up. The Holy Spirit's just spoke. I've, I've seen what isn't the real McCoy too, and it just doesn't have an effect on you other than making you sad that someone would attempt to do that outside of the leadership of the Holy Spirit. But when the real thing happens, everyone knows it. They just know it. So all I'm trying to say is that we should pay very close attention to the fact that when the Holy Ghost truly shows up, the human imagination can't comprehend what he's able to accomplish. But we need to position ourselves for this kind of move of God. And uh, God's calling America to return 
to this type of revival and we just need we need to get ready for it we need to be ready for it we need to repent and we need to be watching we need to be waiting we need to be fasting we need to be praying we need to be looking to god for a fresh infilling of the holy spirit in our lives and in our church services now point number three pentecost it should be about a hunger for him and a disdain for the things of this world. Now you might question what passage of scripture I chose here to bring this point home, but let me preface it by saying this. There were people that were in this church, in the early church, seeing God do these things, seeing the Holy Ghost work these miracles, and yet it didn't have the same effect on them that it had on others. And, and I'll read the story to you in Acts chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain in your, your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, no one laid down a law that he had to bring the money to the church. He could have kept it. He didn't have to say a word. It wasn't required. So, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now, you might be wondering, well, Pastor, what is it we're being encouraged to ask God to do? <laughs> Well, you're being encouraged to ask the Holy Spirit to manifest himself in our lives and in the church in these miraculous ways. Now, what, what happened was Ananias and Sapphira were a small representation of people in the early church who didn't get it. They didn't, they didn't grasp what was really going on. Matter of fact, I've prayed about this and the, the diagnoses that I believe that the Holy Spirit has revealed to me is that the sin of pride was in their lives. And actually hypocrisy and the root of it was pride. Someone, if you read the previous chapter, came in and laid money at the apostles' feet. That kicked off this whole thing of selling everything you've got and bringing it to the church and making all things common. It didn't say God told them to do it. It said that they did it. They did it out of their heart. The person that laid that money initially at the feet of the apostles, I'm sure, was admired by many. Obviously, Ananias wanted that same level of recognition. He wanted to be recognized for being spiritual when he didn't have the goods. That's hypocrisy. That's sin. Now, the Holy Spirit was so strongly manifested 
in the early church that this hypocrisy was deadly dangerous to them. You say, well, Brother Dennis, why, why, why don't people drop dead for hypocrisy in the church today? Well, my, my tendency is this, to believe is this. And, and, and you eat the meat, you spit out the bones, all right? When hypocrisy grips the church in, in a massive way, when like in the church of the, in America, hypocrisy is a, is a plague in the American church, instead of people dropping dead in the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit backs up. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit doesn't manifest. The Holy Spirit doesn't unpack his bag of gifts. He does not heal people. He does not move openly. Uh, why should the Holy Spirit uh, uh, manifest in a way that draws people to something that's not going to continue to give life, that's not going to continue to give God what God wants, if it's full of hypocrisy? Um, if we want the Holy Spirit to come and nestle down, be at home, first of all, you should be in awe and should be in fear. Fearful respect for the Holy Spirit and what he wants to do. So you might be wondering how I came to use the scripture reference for this point. It sounds to me that Ananias and his wife Sapphira could be a part of what the Holy Spirit was doing in the midst of the church they were a part of and still allow things like greed and pride to ruin their lives. Greed because they wanted to hang on to some of the money which would not have been a problem if they had not lied about it. Selling everything and bringing all the proceeds to the church was not a requirement. The pride problem is easily diagnosed when you consider that Ananias and Sapphira longed to be recognized in the church for the piety and spiritual leadership qualities without those true attributes in their lives. Therefore, the hypocrisy. This proves the desire for true holiness did not exist in their spirits. However, the whole book of Acts is a stinging indictment to the lack of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in the American church. So in closing, here's what I want to say to you. It's not too late for the American church or for us as believers at Life Spring Bible Church. The hour's late, however, obviously, but I believe with all of my heart that God is working even now to bring great revival to this very country to this very city, to this very church. Believers, it's got to start with someone. Why not you and me? Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I want to thank you once again for Pentecost Sunday. I want to thank you for this message that you placed in my heart. I want to thank you for your anointing. I want to thank you, Father, for taking the seed of this word and burying it deep in the soil of our hearts. May we be faithful by the power of your spirit to water it with prayer and have a great and mighty harvest come forth for your glory. Father, may it not be about the numbers in our hearts and mind except to say, may many come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior of their lives through this great revival that we're talking about, that we're praying about, that we're wanting to start living for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. Well, praise God. Be reminded that tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. we'll have notes from the pastor's desk. Uh, it's a live broadcast. I really appreciate those of you who sign in to be with us. And then those of you who watch it later in the day um, as it gets recorded and shared. And um, Facebook tells me that up to 70, 75 people a day are watching the little 15-minute broadcast from the morning. And then tomorrow night at 6 p.m. we'll return to the live broadcast on the book of Galatians. So uh, 
uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, 8 a.m., notes from the pastor's desk. Monday night, the book of Galatians, 6 p.m., and Wednesday night, 6 p.m., worship service with Heights Four Square Church in Yakima, Washington. Uh, June the 14th, pray, pray, pray. Get ready spiritually. Uh, June 14th is the day that we want to fire back up and uh, getting together a church service in uh, in Wayland Baptist University. We're looking at what requirements may be uh, may be uh, in place for us that we have to follow. Uh, we'll get clarification on those and prepare a document for that uh, uh, by close of this next weekend and have those prepared for you. But here's the thing that's more important. I'm praying and fasting that God will protect us uh, from the COVID virus that uh, kills that, that germ, kills that virus, and uh, watches over our people, that none of us will get sick. Uh, that's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm believing God for, that he'll watch over us and protect us. You pray about being spiritually prepared, and you pray about whether you're to be there that Sunday. If you don't feel that you're to be there that Sunday, if you feel the Holy Spirit wants you to wait, then wait. Don't don't come Sunday one. Wait. Uh, be at peace. Uh, listen to God. Do what God tells you to do. Um, come uh, if God wants you to come. Come, but know the difference between godly conviction and uh, devilish uh, condemnation. Don't don't respond to devilish condemnation. Uh, do what God wants you to do. All right. And um, we're praying and fasting. The leadership's uh, praying, and we're reaching out to God. We're looking for leadership and guidance and direction, and we want you to be safe. Um, I, I will tell you that the thing that my prayer is, I, I don't want to wear a mask while I'm preaching the gospel um, on the Internet. Um, um, I, I'd like to be 15 or 20 feet away from the first person and, and not wear a mask and preach. So you be praying that I get to do that. I, I think I should be able to do that. And it looks like that the, the guidelines are going to allow for that. And uh, now if you want to come to the service and wear a mask, you should wear a mask. And if it's required, uh, we'll, we'll wear a mask. I, look, I'm so hungry and, and, and missing you so much that I'd wear at this point a full body suit if I needed to just so I could be with you. That, that's what I'm saying to you. And um, I, I, want to be, I don't want to be prideful and rebellious, I want to uh, do the best I can to comply for safety reasons and honor God by honoring the guidelines. Um, but but pray that I don't have to wear a mask while I'm preaching, okay? And we'll know more about that over uh, the next seven days, and we're going to get those guidelines out to you, and um, we'll we'll make them available to you uh, several ways, all right, uh, leading up to it. So get prayed up, get prepared spiritually and physically. For us to be together, and you come to church when, uh, when, when you feel that you want to be there. All right. There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ, for those that are called according to His purpose, and that's us. Amen. Well, I love you. Be blessed. Have a great day in Christ. Amen. Bye.